Dear Heavenly Father, once again we come before you as a church on Sunday morning asking you to receive our worship and Lord that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to do business in our hearts in each heart and life here. Lord, that the message this morning would be preached clearly and simply from your word. Lord, that the Holy Spirit would give us grace to see and understand who we are and Lord that we would surrender once again to your goodness and to your will for our lives. We ask that the lives we live this week will bring glory to your name by our obedience to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You may... The rest of us, let's just review uh, very quickly our verses for this year. Colossians 2.7 Rooted and built up in Him, and then the rest of that verse says, And established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And then First Peter chapter 2, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ, by Jesus Christ. And um, last week, uh, was try, I tried to bring out in the sermon, dealing with the, the constraint, the, the narrowness that exists in being saved. If I surrender my life to Jesus Christ, in salvation, he, he, that is not the end. That's the difference between false religion and true religion. False religion offers salvation as the end goal. Uh, if you're good enough, if you do enough good things, eventually you may have a chance of obtaining to being in heaven with God. The Bible is completely the opposite. You start out with assurance of a home in heaven. That's what salvation is all about. And then God has a plan for us. It says as, uh, as a living stone. And and uh, not going to take time to re-preach last week's sermon, but we, we talked about how that, that stone is placed in the wall. And in the wall, the stone itself is much stronger than it would be all by itself. And yet, if that stone begins to move, there, there's some danger there in uh, ruining the integrity or the structure of the wall. Stones don't move. Uh, once they're built in, if they do, we got problems. Uh, by the way, I want you to pray about something. I talked to uh, a man at the meeting there who uh, gives grants to buildings and things like this. And for the last several years, we've not been able to qualify a union because we don't have enough people and, and, and different things. And he told me, he said, fill out one anyway and send it to me personally. He's the guy that's in charge of the whole thing. So you pray about that. Uh, because what brings to my mind this point is... There's a lot of stones, there's a lot of bricks in the wall at Union, they're loose. And we want to go and make sure that they stay where they're supposed to, amen? Uh, but Christ never intended for a great deal of movement in our lives. I've, uh, many times over the years, people have said, well, pastor, how do I deal with this and how do I deal with this and... So oftentimes the answer is stay put. Grab a hold of what you have. Don't allow yourself to be moved. The Bible says by every wind of doctrine, uh, by the deceit of mankind. Read Ephesians chapter 4. The Bible says we're supposed to stay where we are put in that wall. That's where the protection is. Amen. The other picture is in holy priesthood and, and tried to bring out the restrictiveness of being a priest. Not only did you have to have the right family tree, you had to wear the right clothes, you had to 
uh, wear the garments of the priest. You had to be consecrated as a priest. You had to only eat certain foods. You were not allowed to eat others. Every moment of your day as a priest was regulated by God's Word. In fact, the majority of those 613 commandments that make up the Old Testament law dealt with how the priest was supposed to carry out his duties. And by the way, do you remember what happened if the priest transgressed those duties? How about the two eldest sons of Aaron? The Bible says they offered strange fire and they were burnt up. The fire came out from the Lord and they carried those charred bodies in the garments of the priest outside the camp and buried them. And what did Moses tell Aaron and his other sons that were still living? He says, don't you put mourning for them. He says, you let the nation of Israel mourn for them. But you have on the garments of the priest, you are serving God, and these men transgress that service. You are not allowed to mourn for those who defied God's word. Boy, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And what did he say? Few. There be that find it. He said, many are going to try. But they're not going to be able to. And we talk about this narrow way. And and people talk about the Bible being, oh, well, the Bible's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Mostly don'ts. And, and I want to challenge you. David, in Psalm 119, verse 96, said, I've seen the end of all perfection. He said, I've seen everything that man is able to accomplish, the best. He said, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. You see, we, we need to, as people who are gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ to serve Him, lay hold on this truth. Our greatest freedom is in the narrow way. Our greatest expression of life, our, our greatest ability to move and have the freedom to live life to its absolute fullest comes... When we allow the Word of God to confine us. And this morning, what I'd like to do is look at the life of David. Now, you're going to have to, if you're not familiar with the life of David, this is one of the main purposes of our Through the Bible time at 1030, is we just went through the life of David several months ago. And uh, if, if I tried to take time to get every reference in every verse, uh, I, I will tell you this, I couldn't preach this morning's sermon. And, and so if uh, you're unfamiliar with the life of David, I would suggest reading 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and, and the first several chapters of 1 Kings, uh, there's no way we can cover all that material in one message, but uh, I want us to look at, at the freedom that David had. He said, I find thy commandment exceeding broad. And it was Jesus that said in John chapter 8, says, ye shall know the Son, ye shall what? Be free indeed. Now, we have a lot of people that move to our wonderful city looking for freedom, do we not? They're, they're coming and they're, I'm going to be free from my parents and free from all these rules and I'm going to be free to do whatever I want to do. We probably have some people in this room that moved to New York City with that in mind or, or had that in mind earlier in their life and 
Uh, I'm always reminded of the little sign in the barber shop when I was a kid. Go ahead. Leave home. Uh, pay all your own bills while you still know everything. And uh, I'll tell you what, most of us come into a realization, what is the number one problem in our society today? Everybody's talking about it. Opioid death, is it not? Overdose. Is that freedom? That's how it starts, isn't it? I want a freedom to experience and and to have these things, but before long, it's not freedom, it's an addiction. And the next stage of addiction is bondage and slavery, is it not? Then it's death. The Bible's not kidding It's when it says, Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And Jesus was not just talking about pie in the sky by and by when he said, I've come to give you life and that life more abundantly. Every person that has any understanding at all said, I want to live a good life, right? I mean, I I don't know anyone that says, oh, I can't wait. We're getting married next week and in a couple of years we're going to make the... We're going to make the season premiere of Divorce Court on TV. Uh, you know, nobody starts out that way. But that's where so many people end up. Why? Because they refuse the freedom of the narrow way. And this morning, most of the message is going just to be an illustration of this point. Uh, let's, Let's start in 1 Samuel 16. This is where we're introduced to David. David is the youngest son of Jesse. Jesse, of course, is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And so we have this. Uh, family connection there in the Bible. And, and in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in verse 1, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And So, if you read the rest of the story, Samuel says, Lord, if I go there, Saul's going to find out about it. He's going to kill us. And and the Lord said, listen, you're just going to go. You're going to call for a sacrifice in the city. And what you're going to do, you're going to do in secret. And uh, so, he calls Jesse and he says, where are your sons? And out comes Jesse's firstborn son. And Samuel goes, wow. This is like Saul. This, this, this has got to be him. And God says, no. Second one. No. Third. No. Seventh son. No. And Samuel is looking, Jesse, do you have any more sons? I mean, could you imagine that question? Here, here he's got seven sons that have passed before him. And he says, don't you have another one? And Jesse says, yeah, we, we have the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. He's... And Samuel says, we will not sit down until he comes. And so they go running. And imagine David, he's out there watching the sheep in the pastures. And so this would not have been in Bethlehem proper. This would have been out uh, one of the famous, most famous uh, grazing lands in, in the Bible is just outside Bethlehem. It's what Micah was talking about, the Tower of the Flock. These are the same fields that the wise men would have been watching their sheep in when Jesus was born in Bethlehem many centuries later. But David is out there and here comes somebody running up breathless and says, they're having a sacrifice in 
in Bethlehem and you're asked to be there. He's like, me? At this time, David was probably 12 or 13 years old. And how, how many of you at that age, how many remember being teenagers? I mean, that's a confusing time in one's life, let alone all the other things. And, and here comes the messengers and, and I'm sure David's going, who's going to watch the sheep? I watch the sheep run. They're not going to sit down until you get back there. And so David is, is running in trying to figure out in his young, inexperienced mind what in the world is going on. And I'm sure David's older brothers are going, yeah, yeah, David, good night. It's always David's fault. I mean, that's the way older brothers are. And before they know what's going on, he gathers those seven men, big strapping men, and he says, form a circle, facing out. They have no idea what's going on. And so they're all standing there, and in the middle of this circle is Samuel and David. And David's gone. And Samuel reaches into that long robe and he pours out a horn of oil and with his thumbs, the, the brothers hear the crackling sound and he pours the oil on David's head. Now, this, I mean, having oil, olive oil poured on your head would not be the most pleasant experience as it drips down through your hair and in your eyes and and runs all over you. I mean, you, this this horn probably contained two or three cups of oil, and he's pouring it over David, and it's soaking into his clothes and dripping off his hair. And the brothers, just, when it's all done, the brothers, what happened to you? And David's like, poured oil on my head, because as he did it, I am sure Samuel reached down and said. Not a word. God has anointed you to be the next king of Israel. This is between you, me, and God. And the only ones that heard those words was David, Samuel, and of course the Lord. Now could you imagine being given such a promise as a teenager? I'm going to be the next king! Woohoo! No, that was not what David did. He went right back to keeping the sheep. Why? Because that was his job. You know what David had freedom to do? He had freedom to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord. I want to challenge you today. If you're a parent, the world wants to do one thing to children today. It wants to stop them from being children. It wants to strip them of their innocence. That's why in school, they start in kindergarten. Heather has two mommies and all of these alternate families, because they believe that the human being is a uh, uh, is conditioned, is able to be conditioned and able to to be transformed into whatever they want, and they think being a man and being a woman is only a conditioning. Uh, no, it's it's a little deeper than that, my friend, is it not? It, it is genetic. And it is something that God created us to be who we are. But children shouldn't have to worry about those things. Children should be able to have fun. Amen? Guys, doesn't that sound good? Uh, enjoy life. Now, let me tell you something. As David had these responsibilities, 
He had the freedom to grow up without the care and concern of the kingdom. You know why God doesn't make most of us rich? Is because you'd be so worried about your money, you wouldn't be able to serve God. And by the way, if you weren't worried about your money, some person smarter than you would would steal it from you. And then you'd really be upset. And so God has given us some freedom here. And instead of being upset about not having what we want, why not enjoy the freedom that God gives you? David was free to grow up as a young man, to learn how to keep and protect the sheep. How many of you know the story? As David was keeping the sheep, I believe they were two separate incidents, though David reported them together in the same verse of the lion and the bear, I I am sure that they were two separate incidents that happened as David was keeping the sheep. He's there watching, and all of a sudden, in his corner of his eye, he catches a glimmer. They say, say before, a lion springs, his tail goes straight up, and he jumps, and David saw that. It said that lion had taken the lamb in his mouth and David rescued that lamb before the lion had a chance to boom and kill that lamb. David had rescued him. Let me tell you something. You can mess with a lot of animals, but you don't want to mess with a lion. Pound for pound, the strongest among beasts, as the Bible says, and the most vicious I mean, most of us would have problems with a little house cat. Imagine a, a, a lion, and it wasn't a full-grown African lion. Actually, it was probably a much more dangerous, more like what we would call a mountain lion. And those things are agile, and they can jump 20 and 30 feet through the air. And you'll be dead before you have a chance to hit the floor. And yet the Bible tells us that David learned how to protect those sheep. You want me to tell you how that happened? He had to have time to practice. He had two tools. He had a staff, a rod, and he had a sling. Now, I'm not sure which one it was that he worked the uh, death upon that lion with. The Bible doesn't tell us. But uh, I heard tell the story of a man in the jungles of South America that had killed over 30 lions, jaguars, and and those things in in the jungles of Africa. And here's how he did it. He would go in and he would find the lion, usually perched up in a tree somewhere, and he would taunt the lion into springing at him. And all he had was a spear with a blade about that long on it. And as the lion jumped, he would run that spear up into the chest of that lion and pitch it over his back. Now, I like telling stories about that. But I wouldn't want to trade places with that guy for anything. How about you? I mean, you only had to make one mistake and you were dead. He killed over 30 lions that way. We don't know if David used his staff. And by the way, in real warfare, uh, a good staff is actually superior to a sword nine times out of ten. In the hands of the trained person. That doesn't make sense to me, but I've actually seen demonstrations, and wow, I mean, how do you get that good? You practice, don't you? What was David doing while he's keeping the sheep? He was working. He was practicing. He was learning how to use that staff and that sling, and 
By the way, the sling that David carried wasn't one of those little wrist rocket slingshots like this. I mean, it was on a six-foot cord and it spun around uh, like this. And uh, I'll tell you what, the centrifugal force uh, would embed a stone in solid oak. I mean, it was, it was, a, tri- it was a terrible weapon. But it was just as dangerous to the guy using it if he didn't know what he was doing. That's why Solomon talks about he that bindeth the stone in the sling. He's not smart enough to keep the stone in that little pouch as he's uh, twirling it around. So he ties it in there and when he lets go, the only guy getting hurt is the guy holding the end. Uh, not a smart thing to do. And, and so David was learning, but he also learned how to sing. You know, learning to sing is a, is a wonderful talent. But sometimes God has to give you a little bit of a genetic head start. Amen? <laughs> not, not everyone is cut out for singing, and that's okay. Uh, while we were there at the meeting, Brother Copes was introducing Brother Sam when he preached Tuesday night. And, of course, Brother Sam's always one to make a little comment here or there and and Brother Cope saying, he may fire me for saying all these good things about him. And Brother uh, uh, Davison got up after Brother Copes had said several very true but very nice things about Brother Davison. He said, for a minute there, I thought he was going to sing. <laughs> that would have been really bad. And, and so it was a great way to diffuse the, the, the uh, compliments and get people's attention on the sermon. But... David learned how to sing. Look what it says here in verse 18. This is one of Saul's servants. Then answered one of, one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning and playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. You don't learn how to play an instrument overnight. I'll tell you, most people think, with three chords and a capo, I'm ready for Nashville. Uh, Well, you might be ready for Nashville, but don't try it here. Amen? Uh, you, You need to know what you're doing. You need to practice. You need to learn. You need to train yourself. And... I will tell you that in learning a musical instrument, there, there are several stages. The, the first stage is it's new, it's fun. And then you start realizing how much work it is. And trying to get your fingers to hit the notes in the right order and trying to read all those funny little dots on the piece of paper and, and trying to make sense of everything. And, and you start getting frustrated. But then you begin to master the notes and all of a sudden the instrument starts kind of playing itself. And you're sitting there going, wow, this is really cool until you get something hard. But if you'll struggle through that next level, you stop worrying about the notes on the page. You stop worrying about the instrument that you're trying to play. And you start actually making music. And when that happens, you have a freedom of expression that you cannot find any other way. That's why music is such a powerful tool. Is you can lose yourself and you and the instrument. Uh, I met a saxophone player one time and I'm sure the music he played wasn't good, but he, had, uh, he said that uh, I saw his horn. It was amazing. It was, um, instead of the brass color, it was white. But all the keys were gold. And the inside of the bell was gold. And he said, I, I get them to turn the spotlight on me and I'm wearing a white suit. He said, and... As I play the instrument, the only thing people can see are my fingers moving on the keys. Wow, that's cool. 
it kind of illustrates the point that you lose the person, you lose the instrument, and you get to enjoy the music. That's the kind of freedom that we're talking about here. Oh, it takes a lot of discipline to get there. It takes a lot of walking along the narrow way before you find that freedom that was there. And, and David, as he was growing, was learning to protect the sheep. And he was learning to sing praises to God. And, and he was living in the knowledge that God was preparing him to be the next king. And he had the freedom of not having to tell anybody but God. I'll tell you, those were probably some of the most wonderful days of David's life. In fact, many of the Psalms that, that he wrote were probably the ones that we enjoy the most. Talk about being a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. David was saying, listen, he taught me about caring for the sheep because he wanted me to understand how God cares for me. And, and those Psalms were meant to be sung and and David did that and made melody in his heart. You know, we listen to people like uh, Norman Vincent Peale and uh, Joel Olstein and, and uh, Miss Myers and Ms. Myers and, and all of these people out there that talk about realizing our greatest inward goals and and again, that's really what this purpose-driven life is, is all about. If, uh, please don't read the books. If you haven't read them, please don't, don't do it. It's poison. It's a deadly poison. I've seen it take good churches and destroy every good thing about the church as they seek to have themselves fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't die on the cross to fulfill you. He died on the cross to save you from you. And to give you a freedom of living for Him. David realized his greatest accomplishments. Brother Sam preached a sermon on Ziklag and in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and he talked about how David was greatly distressed. And, and, and he brought forth a point that, hey, it didn't say when David faced Goliath, he was greatly distressed. In fact, it sounded like David was ready to go. He said, king, let me go. And the king said, you can't go, you're just a kid. And he's a man of war his whole life. How in the world? And David said, well... I faced the lion and I faced the bear. God gave me a job to do, keep my sheep. And now I've got a job to do is keep the sanctity of God's name, who this uncircumcised Philistine has cursed. He said, God can use me. And the strangest thing at all was Saul felt no drop of conviction in his own soul for his own cowardness and his own unwillingness to go. Well, if you're willing to go, go. Why, why was David like that? Because he was free in his knowledge of God and in his purposeful, personal holiness matching up with God's holiness that gave him a courage and a strength that not even Goliath could shake. And even to this day, every time some little guy beats the big guy, we talk about David and Goliath. But it comes nowhere near David and Goliath. David, if he had reached his full height, probably would have been barely over five feet tall. Goliath was nine and a half foot tall. I mean, you stop and think about a man nine and a half feet tall. A five-foot-tall man is what? 130, 140 pounds? You go up one foot, a six-foot man is somewhere between 190 and 200. Maybe a little over, it's okay. Um, but you start getting up to six-five and seven-foot. 
I mean, if you keep those ratios going up, Goliath probably weighed between five and 600 pounds easily. Uh, how in the world are you going to get the sword deep enough into a guy that weighs 600 pounds to do any good? Especially when he's wearing a, a, a coat of mail that weighs almost as much as you do. I mean, this guy's armor weighed over 100 pounds, and the end of his spear was, uh, was 11 or 12 pounds on the end of a 4x4, four four, and he carried that thing around. You, you, you stop and think about this. Was David afraid? No, he had perfect freedom in the knowledge of God's ability not to be afraid of the giant. He was more afraid of offending God's holiness than he was of the giant being able to kill him. Do you see that? Now, who was really all bound up in... And, and tied up. Who had no freedom at all? It was Saul. He was there for 30 days listening to this giant come out and give the challenge every day. He couldn't go anywhere. Every day the army got ready. Today's the day. And then Goliath shows up and they say, well, maybe not today. Let's go home. You tell me who had freedom. You know what? David, even though Saul was chasing him and all of those terrible things that happened over those years between when he killed Goliath and became the, the king of Israel, you know what he was doing? He was building his mighty men. You remember the original description? In debt discontent. I mean, let me just read it. It's 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1. It says, And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented. Wow! What a great set of attributes for mighty men, huh? Oh, my. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, uh, you know, you just look at all of those problems. And every one of these men brought their families along. Eventually, you'd have 600 men and their families. And guess who was supposed to take care of them? David was. That doesn't sound like freedom to me. And you know, David didn't do everything right, did he? David was not chosen by God because he was the smartest guy out there. He proved that by showing up at, Goliath, at Gath wearing Goliath's sword. I mean, that's not a very bright thing to do now, is it? He says, well, I'm running away from Saul. I'll be safe in the land of the Philistines. So he puts on Goliath's sword and goes into Goliath's hometown. As someone said, many that's dumber than a box of rocks. Uh, I mean, that, that's just dumb. And before long, it got whispered to the king, hey, did you see what he's wearing? He's the guy that killed Goliath, and you're going to welcome him into Goliath's hometown? And uh, David began to play himself the madman. You think God was in that? Now, sometimes, it, there's no freedom in pretending to be a crazy person now, is there? See, David didn't belong there. Shouldn't have gone in the first place. David didn't do everything right. He wasn't perfect. But I'll tell you what, in spite of his wrong decisions... He took that group of discontented slobs and turned them into one of the strongest 
and even to this day, most talked about elite fighting forces in the history of mankind. You read those exploits. 1 Samuel 23. The chief did hand-to-hand combat, one on 800 and one. They don't even do that in the Kung Fu movies, my friend. And those things are, if you watch those things, uh, you can ask the Lord to forgive you. But, uh, I mean, just dumb, 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 dumb. But this guy did it for real. And another one was 300 to 1. And another one jumped down in a pit full of snow and killed a lion. Tell you what, the lion didn't have any problems. He's got claws. But David's mighty man, Ben and I, he didn't have claws. He had to jump and he had to know where he was jumping and he had to be careful. And I mean, you talk about unbelievable feats of mightiness. These guys did it. Three of them took on the whole Philistine army. I'll tell you, it's... And these men wouldn't be David's mighty men if it weren't for David learning to lead them. Their exploits were based on, no matter what I can do, it still doesn't match what David already did. He encouraged those men to do great and incredible things, and he built those mighty men, and he did become king. And later on, the prophet Nathan came to him and said, in your line, God's going to establish Your kingdom forever because His Son is going to come of your seed. And we're still waiting for the consummation of that promise that was made to David a thousand years before Jesus came to earth the first time. But He's coming, my friend. No, what a day it's going to be when the Prince of Peace rules this world from the city of peace. Amen? But you know what? David lost some freedom, didn't he? 1 Samuel chapter 30 is the story of Ziklag where all of the wives and children of his men were taken captive by the Amalekites. You know what? David had lost the ability. He had lost the freedom to protect his men and their families. In fact, they were blaming David. And you know why? It was his fault. Never would have happened if they weren't living in the Philistines under the protection of the Philistine king. David left his people unguarded because he he couldn't do anything else. He was forced into the situation. Why was he forced? Because he didn't have the freedom that he needed to do what was right. And when you get tangled up with the world, you're going to lose the freedom to stay on the narrow road. And when you do, you're going to lose a lot of else too. I'll tell you what, God was there to forgive him, wasn't he? Ziklag was the last wake-up call for David. And what did David do? He inquired of the Lord. He obeyed what God gave him and God blessed him with the recovery of not only his family and the family of his families of his men, but with all of the spoil that the Amalekites had taken. I I don't I believe God blessed David to show him, hey, it's not in your plans and in your machinations that keep you safe. It's in following me and staying on that narrow road. The promise was to Israel in the land, not outside the land. The promise of God's protection was in the place where God put you, not under the protection of the Philistines. Of course, everybody's familiar with David's great sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah, her husband, and against his people named Israel, and against God. God forgave David for that sin, didn't he? 
But you know what? David lost an awful lot of freedom because of that act. It would be several years later when Amnon would commit an unspeakable act and defile his own half-sister. You know where David was? Well, God, God forgave me. I, I'd be a hypocrite to put Amnon to death for what he did. You know what? He didn't have the freedom to serve God as he should. And that brought about Absalom, who did what was legally and lawfully right in avenging the defilement of his sister by killing Amnon. That was the penalty. But here's the problem. Absalom did not have the authority. He wasn't the judge. But he made himself that because David wouldn't, couldn't stand in the place where David needed to stand because David had lost the freedom to do what he should have done. And then when Amnon killed, was killed by Absalom... Again, David's hands were tied because he had killed Uriah. And that would bring Ahithophel and Absalom together to plot against David to take the kingdom. And David would have to flee for his life. You talk about being uh, ripped in, in, in to the depths of your soul as his own son Absalom had tried to kill him. And what have? If they had only listened to Ahithophel, David's chief counselor. But you see, even in David's sin and in David's loss of freedom, God was still working. And he defeated Absalom and all of his plans. Ahithophel, his chief counselor who was never wrong, went home and killed himself. Why? Because he knew what was going to happen. And it wasn't long before Absalom was dead. He did not have freedom to raise his children to serve God as he should have because David sacrificed the narrow way trying to experience something that he felt would be good. David lost freedom to lead his nation because of his sin. Joab. That scoundrel, he should have been executed a long time before he was. He killed Abner. He killed Amasa, the two men that were going to take his position. Joab was... He did David's dirty work in making sure Uriah got killed. I mean, and, and what was David going to do? Judge the man who knew all of his secrets? You talk about bondage. This is where the world wants to have you. This is what the devil loves to do with people. How about Shimei who came out as he was fleeing Jerusalem from Absalom's entourage entering the city? And he cursed David and, and railed upon him because he was from the house of Saul and he was blaming all of the woes that Saul had brought on his family on David. What was David's only answer? Let him curse. Maybe God will hear his cursing and give me some deliverance. That's, that's not a very pleasant place to be now, is it? You see, even at the very end of David's life, 2 Samuel 24, how many remember the story of numbering Israel? God was mad at Israel. And so he allowed the devil to provoke David to bring judgment upon Israel. Because 
David had lost the freedom to keep his nation and his leadership in that narrow road. Are we still together? See, we think we can make a little decision to get us a little freedom. I just need to, I know it's not exactly right, but I just want to enjoy this. Well, let me tell you, look at the life of David. He never got any freedom by any of the things. He lost freedom. But when he was simple and obedient to God, that's when he had the courage to face Goliath. That's when he had the... And after he sought God's forgiveness, God even allowed him as he was preparing to meet God, as he was preparing to die, David looked and the last acts of his life and his kingship was preparing the materials for the building of Solomon's temple. God said, listen, you can't build it. David, you've lost that freedom. I can't let you build my temple. But I'm going to let your son, who's established in peace, I'm going to let him build the temple. And on down through his line is going to come the king that will reign forever. The Messiah, the answer to all of the prophecies. And so David spent the last several years of his life, the last decade or so, amassing a fortune unknown to most of us today in building the temple at Jerusalem. Hundreds of talents of gold. Each talent is 75 pounds. Each pound, if we measure it in today's standard, is 13 ounces. So, Stop, start figuring 13 times, what is it now? $1,500 for an ounce of gold? 13 times 15 times 75 times 800? Uh, you could pay the national debt with that. Come close anyway. And, and David was able to amass all of that. And yet, what was he called? The sweet psalmist of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. David wrote those words under the influence and direction of the Holy Spirit of God. I believe David wrote Psalm 119. One of the most wonderful chapters in all of the Bible. 176 verses. Each one of them divided up into 22 sections. The beginning of each verse in that section began with the same letter of the alphabet. That was uh, a Hebrew form of poetry. And you read that and you can read David's entire life story in Psalm 119. Uh, several years ago, about 10 years ago, we went through Psalm 119. It took us over a year. Uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. I don't know. But uh, I sure enjoyed that study. I will tell you that. Time to close. How many of you say, Preacher, I see the freedom and the bondage in David's life based upon the way he walked with God? Would you just lift a hand? I want to make sure I get this point across. David's greatest freedom was in the times where he was most compliant, most restricted, may I use that word? I'm going to. Most constrained by the Word of God. And in those times of greatest constrainment by the Word of God, David realized his greatest freedom and expression of praise and worship to God in the Psalms, of courage on the battlefield in the defeat of Goliath, of wisdom and benevolence as the king of Israel, 
of great fortune and philanthropy as he prepared for the building of the temple. You know, David's accomplishments are far greater than anything you and I will ever, ever experience. But that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the same freedom that David enjoyed. By being that living stone put in place by the builder. By operating as part of that holy priesthood as we are built up in holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. You know, that's one of the reasons why Andrew worked so hard on the music, picking those songs, so that we can offer up spiritual sacrifice of songs. How many of you enjoyed that quiet choir number this morning? That was a blessing, wasn't it? Uh, One of the witnesses sang that years ago when they were here. And and, uh, Andrew always liked that song. I mean, the master of the wind, the guy that's in charge of all of the storms, He knows me. And He wants me to have total freedom to bring glory and honor to His name. But that only happens as I am willingly constrained by the words of God as recorded in His Bible. But in that constrainment, what freedom do I have? Free from guilt. Free from worry. Free from fear. I I have a freedom this world wishes they had. They go to all kinds of unbelievable extremes trying to find freedom and they end up looking just like the next freak that comes walking down the pathway of life. Do they not? And if they don't turn to Jesus, they all end up on a cold slab in the morgue somewhere. Wishing with family standing around, oh, I wish they could have lived a little longer. That's how the devil works. But when you're on that narrow road, when you're willing to be that living stone, You're willing to let the builder put you where he wants you and constrain you with mortar and other stones and put you in that wall where you can't move. You'll find that you have the greatest expression of worship and praise. And by the way, when we get to heaven, I was talking about this with our men this morning at the prayer breakfast. When... When you get to heaven, that's what heaven's going to be. Read Revelation 4 and 5. It's going to be talking about how good God is and what He's done to allow me to bring praise and worship to His life. How many of you want to enjoy that day? If you do, first of all, you've got to get saved. And you've got to get baptized. And he got to start serving God in the church. Well, I could never be so confined as you guys are just crazy. And oh, wait a minute, what was the sermon about this morning? Where are you going to find your greatest freedom? It's when you surrender to the restrictions that are in God's Word. Then God can use you. To bring glory to His name. He'll give you freedom to face the challenges of this world in which we live. And all God's people said. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And Lord, I ask that you would, the Holy Spirit would take the life of David and burn it into our minds. And Lord, that we could see. And, and, and Lord, I, I would encourage even... Uh, pray that the Holy Spirit would encourage each one here to read through the life of David and let the Holy Spirit speak to them about all of these great expressions of freedom versus the bondage that and the suffering that was brought by wrong decisions in the life of David. This was a real man who lived a real life. 
And Lord, that we would take the example of David and ask you to change the way we live. Lord, I pray that we would do business with you as individuals. That our corporate life together as a church may be worthy to bring more praise and glory and honor to your name. We ask you to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. 307 is the hymn. This was not primarily a salvation sermon, but if you've not settled the issue of salvation, we'd be happy to take the Word of God and help you understand what it means to be saved. But if you are.